You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 41, I want to read and I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in, okay? Psalm 41, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. And... Set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we read this psalm and I think we we instantly know, we instantly feel um, the emotion of the text. We, We can immediately sense the pain that's in this text. And so, Father, uh, pray that you would come as a good surgeon and that through the preaching of your word and the study of your word, God, that you would do a surgical work inside of our hearts. Um, Father, I'm, I'm really aware of the fact that oftentimes pain can just eclipse your greatness and it shouldn't be that way. And so, Father, I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit that you would magnify and exalt yourself in us and in our hearts, that your spirit would be released to take a walk down maybe some dark corridors in our hearts. Lord, that you would do a surgical healing, restoring, and rejuvenating work. Father, we trust you to do this and then some. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. So our uh, Summer in the Psalms series, this is a series I look forward to uh, all throughout the year. It is my favorite. Love preaching through the books of the Bible that we study. I've really enjoyed our uh, series in the book of Acts that we've been in now for a number of months. But Psalms is um, just a deeply personal and I think refreshing study for me. And this will be the fifth year that we have um, devoted our summer series to studying through the Psalms. 
Uh, my hope is that this would be one of the richest summers for us yet. Um, so we're going to be in Psalms 41 all the way through 50 uh, this year. As many of you know, if you studied the Psalms at all, uh, you may know that the Psalms are some of the rawest, uh, so some of the most human passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Some of the most human. Because in the Psalms, what, what the writers do is they, they don't ever shrink back from expressing their deepest emotions. Sometimes they do it with some really shocking honesty. The Psalms are also um, not only some of the most human passages in all of the Bible, they're also some of the most God-exalting passages in all of Scripture. And the reason why is because the psalmists are, are never content with, with merely wallowing in their feelings of helplessness or hopelessness or loneliness. We're never content with just staying there. In the Psalms, what we see is we see very real people with, with very real, very oftentimes very painful human emotions and experiences. And, they, and, they, and they, what they do is they, they use those, they allow those to turn the attention of their hearts towards the, the sufficiency and, and the majesty of a very real, a very sovereign, a very loving, very gracious, very, very merciful, very just God. I was thinking about all this uh, while I was in the gym this last week. Some of you guys know. <clears throat> in the gym. I don't know how many of you guys frequent the gym. By the looks of us, most of us enjoy the Fat Baptist potluck more than the gym. I know that I do. I'm not afraid to admit it. <laughs> I was in the gym and I was thinking about these things, just thinking about the Psalms overall, thinking about this text. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been in the gym, I'm sure, and if you haven't, I'm sure you can imagine. Um, how difficult some of those days at the gym can be, how intense a workout can be. Um, most of us um, frequent the gym. We go to the gym for a couple of reasons, right? We want to get healthier. We want to lose a little bit of weight. Uh, we want to get a little bit stronger. And yet, in the midst of that, there are some of those days where I definitely, like for me, I feel like I'm getting healthier. I, I feel like I'm probably getting a little bit lighter. I don't know. Um, the scale says I am, so I'm thankful. Not as fast as I wish it was, but it is what it is. So there are some days where I do feel healthier, I do feel a little bit lighter, I do feel a little bit, bit, bit stronger. Um, but then I, I also was thinking about <laughs> the faces that I make in the mirror um, when at the gym. You ever, if you ever worked out at the gym, the, I don't know, why, why would they put mirrors in a gym? Like, that's the most horrifying thing a person can do. You know, I'm out. I, I can't see very well, so I personally like to take my glasses off when I'm in the gym. Because then, you know, everybody's just outlines and silhouettes. And I would like that for myself, too, because I don't look so good in the mirror. But I especially don't look good in the mirror when I'm trying to, like, curl a weight that's really, really heavy. Because the face that I make is absolutely horrid. Okay? Um, not pretty at all. Also, some of those days. Um, so the, these are just observations from my time in the gym. And we're going to, there's some connection here. Bear with me. Also some days um, when I walk out of the gym, 
um, and I feel like I can barely walk to my truck. Like, there, I mean, there have been times where I'm pretty sure I'm going to face plant in the parking lot because the workout was so stinking intense. Um, the, like some of those days when I get home, um, I'll walk in the door and Christy will usually ask me, hey, how was your, she asked me the same question, how was your workout? And what usually goes through my mind is like, what's the right answer? <laughs> what am I supposed to say? It was great. It sucked. <laughs> I'm out of energy. I, usually though, when I walk into the home after working out at the gym, I, I, I feel a little bit sick to my stomach, right? It's just tensed up really hard for the last hour or so. Feel like my energy is completely crushed. Sometimes I walk in feeling absolutely defeated because I didn't hit the goals I wanted to hit. Um, typically, though, when I walk into the house, I feel like I can barely lift up, lift up my head, let alone lift an arm or a leg. You ever experienced that kind of a day? You know what I'm talking about? And listen, I'm not talking about the gym, really. I'm using the gym as a bridge, right? I'm talking about days when you feel absolutely sick to your stomach because someone betrayed you. Whether it's a spouse, or an ex-spouse, friend, leader, or parent, someone betrayed you, and you feel absolutely crushed by the weight of that close friend who turned out to be your worst enemy. That's a rough day. You feel completely defeated because you figured out that the person that you trusted some of your deepest, darkest things, the person that you felt like you trusted your very life with, someone that you were the most vulnerable with, someone you were the most transparent with, that person proved that he or she has been actually deceiving you. And not just deceiving you and lying to you. They turned out to be the biggest monster you ever knew. This is where I imagine that our psalmist is at today. When I read the text, I get this picture of an author, a man, most likely David, feels sick to his stomach. He feels crushed by the weight of betrayal. He feels defeated by the deception of a close friend who turned out to be his enemy. And I imagine the look on his face is quite similar to the look on my face when I've reached my breaking point at the gym. It's that look that says, I can't hardly make it through this. The reality is what's taking place here in this psalm is that the psalmist has been weakened by that sickness he feels deep down inside. He feels weakened by that crushing weight that he's been carrying. He feels weakened by the sense of, of defeat that he can no longer bear. And the question is, is where does the psalmist turn to for strength in the midst of his weakened state. Like for me, when I come home from the gym, I normally want to drink a protein drink. And when I drink that, usually about an hour later, I'm like jacked up and ready to go back to the gym again. Where does the psalmist go to get re-energized in his weakened state? The question is the same for us. Where do we turn for strength? When that sick feeling, that thing in the pit of your stomach overwhelms you, and when the weight has absolutely crushed you, 
But when your energy to fight anymore is completely gone. When someone betrays you. Sometimes I have to admit, I typically just look for some kind of momentary escape. I don't know if you're in the same place or not sometimes. Um, want to escape from that pain? Looking for some way to medicate it, maybe. And we, we all have ways that we do this. Some of the ways that we do that maybe don't look as bad as others. Some of us get lost in our work. We just work more. That doesn't look so bad because you get a big paycheck at the end, right? There are some of us who have learned to turn to a really big bottle of something. There are some of us who wind up turning to vegging out behind our TVs. There's this... There's multiple ways. Other ways, I suppose, is we start calling friends, right? Phone a friend. Post things up on Facebook. There's a myriad of ways that we seek to escape from that pain. And I, I'm, I'm just as prone to that as you are. But as we look at the psalmist here, the psalmist shows us how to do this. He shows us how to cope with our weaknesses. When, when we feel like our weaknesses are too much to bear alone, what he does is he looks to the God of the sick. He, he looks to the God of the crushed. He looks to the God of the defeated. He quite literally turns his eyes off of the betrayal and the pain and the hurt that is horizontally right in front of him. And he lifts his eyes up and he looks straight to the God of the weak. If you look at verses 1 through 4, this is what you see. You'll notice how our psalmist describes the God of the weak. He describes the God of the weak as the God who not only notices the weak, which I think is, is important for us to understand because oftentimes we feel like or we think that nobody notices us in our pain, but the psalmist tells us that God actually notices the weak. The, the word that's used in the ESV that we just read is the word poor. And there are other translations that would, um, that would alliterate that as uh, uh, the weak instead of poor. It's in the same verbiage. God not only notices the weak, but He also delivers him. Uh, when, when you're reading these verses, you'll see that the psalmist is having the worst day of his life. And on the worst day of his life, the psalmist says that he knows that he serves the God who loves to deliver his people in the midst of their weaknesses. When was the last time that you felt that longing, that desire, that deep desire to be delivered from something, someone, because you felt too weak to get free? This is what the psalmist is feeling. He's feeling too weak to get free from the sickness that he feels deep in the pit of his stomach. And so what does he do? He reminds himself, and he really, he really reminds us as well, that God is the God of the weak who loves to rescue and to deliver his people. And not only that, but according to verse 2, the God of the weak is the one who provides perfect protection from anything. Or, or anyone that would seek to take the life of his children. 
Think about that. The God of the weak is the best shelter. He's the best suit of armor. He's the best fortress. And we sang about that this morning. Mighty fortress is our God. I always use the analogy and the illustration of the snow forts that my sister and I built when we were kids. My uh, snow forts were better than hers. They were more sturdy. We lived in the country, and she would stick hers in one ditch on one side of the gravel road, which was impassable when it snowed, so we didn't have to worry about traffic. Mine was in the ditch on the other side of the road, and we would lob snowballs at each other, and we'd hide behind our snow forts. And at some point, I'd find a way to distract her, and I'd go barging across that, that road and just <laughs> dive bomb right into her uh, snow fort and just demolish it and laugh and walk away. The reality is snow forts are so useless. Right? There's no real fortress there. Think about the places that we go. When pain sets in and when you've been betrayed, the things that you run to for shelter or escape, they're like snow forts if you're not running to the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is our only certain trustworthy fortress. It's the best fortress we could run to when we're too weak to protect ourselves from our enemies. You think about the sickness that you feel deep down inside in the pit of your stomach when you realize that someone that you trusted has now turned out to be someone you never thought they would be. That kind of sickness, not, not the kind that just goes away in a few moments, but the kind that leaves you curled up in a fetal possession in your bed for a really long time. You know what that's like, right? The psalmist definitely knows. When you look at verse 3, the psalmist simply says that the God of the weak is the one who not only sustains him, he helps him to endure the pain, right? Which is really important to know. Because in those moments, you feel like, how will I ever get through this. It feels like there's bombshells going off all around you. So it's really, really good to know that God will sustain us in the midst of that kind of warfare. But He doesn't just do that. Because in verse 3, He says that He also will restore him to full health. This is a picture of the God of the weak literally helping us not only endured that kind of sickness in the pit of our stomach, but simultaneously at the same time, he's rebuilding. Rebuilding. And oftentimes, I would take it a step further. And I would say that God even uses those moments in our lives to build us into the people that he actually designed us to be. God of the weak. I think that the best protein energy drink that you or I could ever consume when you're feeling too weak to get out of bed. As the psalmist preaches this sermon to himself about the God of the weak, something happens in his memory. And he remembers just how weak the human race really is when it comes to our own struggles with sin. And I think this is an interesting, and I think it's a very vital 
transition the psalmist makes. See, betrayal from a friend on the outside is one thing, right? But, but the psalmist remembers that he, and really you and I too, we, we wrestle with an enemy on the inside of us that is insidiously bent on our destruction. This little thing that we call sin, and I would phrase here as sin within. This is something that we often overlook when dealing with somebody else's sin against us. Other people's sin against us have a, has a... Um, has a tendency to cause us to look inward in a certain way that, 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 that allows us to become victims uh, in need of complete healing over and over and over again, and, and then we fail to see ourselves as just as sinful as those outside of us. This is why in verse 4, when you look at what the psalmist says, he says, As for me... He starts with God, looking towards God. Now he moves inward and looks at me. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. See, at the, at the end of the day, even our worst and most troublesome days, when, when facing the bewilderment of betrayal, you, you understand that when, when, when you face betrayal, it catches you off guard, right? You never expect to see that coming. You think that person was your friend. And it's bewildering. You feel like you get hit by a Mack truck when something like this happens because you never in a million years thought that person would become the monster they became. In the midst of that bewilderment, what we need in those moments is to come to our Father in a posture of repentance in need of His grace in the face of our own sinfulness. Yes, yes, it is, it is right and good to come to our Father in heaven in need as a victim of someone else's sin against us. But it is not right and good and healthy for us to stay in that posture or even be in that posture alone. It's when we lose sight of the fact that there is sin fully alive within us that we become and begin a very downward spiral of being victimized and then you become victimized over and over and over again because that is the identity you now walk under rather than the simultaneous identity of a sinner who's been saved by grace. You need that. You and I both need that. You will not get through the horror of betrayal if you do not latch a hold of this truth. You are just as sinful as the person who hurt you. Our sinful responses, think about this, our sinful responses to other people's sin against us, that's still sin. That is still sin that needs to be repented of. And I would say that nothing would weaken us more than our own sin. And if Satan can find any way to get us to overlook our sin by making the sins of those against us look bigger, then he wins. The reality is this. We're not responsible for the sins of those around us. We're not responsible for the sins of those who sin against us. 
What we are responsible for is the sin that lives within. And if you and I are to find strength in the midst of our weaknesses, you're only going to find it in the gracious presence of the God of the weak. And you're only going to find it there as you repent of your own sin and turn to Him in faith. No one ever walked into God's presence and was like, hey, I'm good, but those people really hurt me. That's called pride. You ever experienced a day like this? Keep asking that question. You ever experienced a day like this? Maybe multiple days like this where you felt weak because that sickness that you felt in the pit of your stomach because someone close to you turned out to be a fraud. What do you do on that day of trouble? Because that's the language the psalmist uses in verse 1. That day of trouble. What do you do? What we've seen here is when the psalmist was feeling weak, when the psalmist was feeling sick to his stomach because he experienced a horrifying day that was filled with betrayal and deceit, he rested. He rested. I don't think he rested out behind the TV. I don't think he rested under the weight of a bottle of alcohol. I don't think he wrestled under going through Facebook. He rested his weak and his weary heart in this truth. And this is the truth that he rested his heart in. The God of the weak, he sees, he delivers, he protects, he blesses, he sustains, and he restores those who call out for his grace amidst their weakness. That's the picture of the God of the weak. That's where our psalmist starts. It's a picture of the God of the weak. Now that he's filled his mind and his heart with this image of the God of the weak, the psalmist bears his soul to God. And he describes his enemy, the enemy of the weak. The psalmist doesn't try to sugarcoat anything, doesn't try to make it seem like his enemy isn't that bad, doesn't try to minimize this monster that his friend has now become. His once upon a time close friend has now become a monstrous enemy. And he feels absolutely crushed by what he now knows about this person whom he once entrusted his life to. You look at verses 5-9 through nine and the psalmist describes his enemy as someone who is full of malice, hatred. His enemy is someone who literally wants him dead. He wants the psalmist's name to be wiped off the face of the earth. This enemy comes to visit, and his words hold no weight. They're meaningless, full of deception. He spreads his lies to anyone who will listen. And it's not enough for the enemy of the weak to just pick a fight with someone who can't fight back. He's got to go gather himself a gang. He's got to gather other people around him that will listen to his lies. Anyone who will take up his cause against you as they imagine the worst for you. So now, the one whom you thought was your friend, the one who you shared intimate spaces with, in this text, 
at your own table, in your own home, that one, that one now has an entire team of new friends who hate you and they're dreaming of your death and they can't wait to see you fail. That, that would be a crushing blow that I think would weaken the strongest of men and women. Agreed? And even if you've not experienced this, you're not able to put a person's face to this kind of pain in your life. I think you and I both know that we do have a very real enemy, right? Who loves to approach us as an angel of light. I'm your friend. I'm promising you all sorts of joy and happiness and escape. You just X, Y, Z. We have a very real deceptive enemy who comes to us as an angel of light. He comes to us with empty promises. He comes to us with deceptive words while he's plotting our ultimate death. Because if he can accomplish that, he brings injury to our Father in heaven. He seeks our death. And he does it through persistent deception. It's not like he just lies to you once. He's persistent. Every time he opens his mouth, it's a lie, but it sounds like it's good. It's the father of lies. There's no truth in him. And he's laying plans for your destruction and for your imprisonment. And in the midst of doing that, he consistently betrays his promises to you. And the enemy of the week, <coughs> Satan, sin, death, the enemy of the week often leaves God's children feeling defeated. And the question at that point is, and how am I going to get out from underneath this, right? Where can you find victory <coughs> in those moments when you're feeling that defeated? You look back at the text and you start looking at verses 10 through 13, you'll see that when the psalmist is feeling this way, he's feeling weak and defeated. Right? He, after he's now described the enemy of the weak, he has turned his attention back to the God of the weak, right? But because but he, he, he begins with, here's God, here's who he is. He begins there. And then he moves into, but here's my enemy. After he's done that, he now turns his attention back to God. And he, he talks about God in, in a very different way. He, he no longer talks about God in the impersonal language of a theologian. We, after Holden's sermon last week, we, our, our men's group had probably one of the richest conversations we've had about what is that transition point between this impersonal language of a theologian that God is that, God is that, and God is this, and those are good and true and you need that, but where does that transition take place from God is that to God you are? From the impersonal to the personal. And where is that spark that makes that happen? That was a fantastic conversation for us. And you see it happening once again here. 
He shifts from talking about God in the impersonal language of a theologian. And now he talks directly to God in this very personal language. Catch this. I think of a son. Of a son who knows that he will experience true victory in the presence of a loving and gracious heavenly father who delights in him. This word delight, we're going to come back to it again in a minute, but I I can't help but say this word delight, uh, I think of that like a little baby. I I don't know how many of us don't delight in seeing a little baby smile. You know, that delight feeling. I think of our daughter and son-in-law who just had their baby a few weeks ago. I think I told you, you know, she was like, Eight weeks early, right? So tiny, you know, no bigger than my forearm, just just itty bitty. And you know, the the look, this is their first baby. Of course, you know, for Chris and I, we're almost empty house, so some of those years are long ago. For grandbabies, though, for us, just delight. So happy to see them. And the delight that I saw in my son-in-law's face, my daughter's face, as they saw their first daughter. Can I just tell you, that doesn't come anywhere close to expressing or describing the delight that I think our Father in Heaven actually feels over us. It's just, it's, it, to me, it's, it's always been mind-blowing because when I look in the mirror, back to the mirrors, I don't, I don't think I see the same person that God sees. I, I still have a tendency to see all my brokenness, all my failures, all my sins, and I need to see those clearly, Right? Like, God's Word is a mirror that does just that, and it should turn me to my Savior and my God and my Father, but what it should turn me to is not this God and Savior and Father who who is grumpy and and upset, and gosh, I gave you this list of chores you should have done, and you messed it up. It's actually this Father who delights in me. You look at verses 10-13. through psalmist shifts his eyes from those theological truths that he knows about God. Many a theologian have been stuck knowing about God and have never known God. Watch this movie this last week called uh, Nefarious. Holy commended to you. It is rated R. Great movie. But there is a scene in that demon-possessed man. There's a scene in that movie where this demon-possessed man looks at another man in the room and, and he goes, you know, we demons are the best theologians to have ever walked this earth. We're better than any of you humans. We know more about God than you ever knew. It's true. But you know what they don't know? Is they don't know God. Even the demons know about God, but they don't know Him. Here the psalmist makes that shift, turns his eyes from those theological truths that he knows about God in verses 1-4. through four. He also shifts his eyes off the immediate pain that we oftentimes get stuck in, that pain that winds up eclipsing the power of a personal God who would say, you are my son, you are my daughter, I delight in you, I want to be with you. And he rests his soul in that intimate presence as Heavenly Father. Listen to what he says. You, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them 
And by this I know that you delight in me. My enemies will not shout in triumph over me. You have upheld me because of my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. You know what the word of forever in the Greek means? Thank you. Very good. It's a trick question. <laughs> Blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You see, the God of the weak, the God of the weak, I think, takes great pleasure in giving us the victory because He delights in us. You look at these final verses and you start contemplating, you start thinking, you start making connections throughout the Scriptures. You make, you make connections throughout the whole narrative, the, the storyline. You start thinking about what the Bible is all about, actually. And I think you find that these final verses actually revolve around the immediate and eternal victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Like our victory is found in the grace of God who delights in us. He, he lifts us up out of the pit of death. He rescues us in His presence and He secures us there forever where nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from His love, according to Romans 8. 38 and 39, my favorite place of Scripture. This is the victory of the weak, that God would look upon us in our sin-weakened state as we actually lived in open warfare against Him, open sin against Him. And what He would do is He would then say, I'm going to send my Son, and I'm going to send my Son to a bloody cross in their place, so that my son would then leave that tomb empty three days later. So that my son would graciously leave them with this rock-solid hope in the promise of eternity in heaven. See, that's true victory. That's true victory for the weak, and it's only found in the shadow of a bloody cross, in the doorway of an empty tomb, in light of the hope of heaven. I was telling a friend this week that of all the sermons that I ever get to preach, uh, if I die tomorrow coming back from some crazy outlaw biker thing on my bike with our guys, and if I, if I let out of all the millions of words I probably preached, I would hope that you'd remember one phrase. There's that. It's the shadow of a bloody cross. The foot of a bloody cross. The doorway of an empty tomb. And it's the hope of heaven. I ought to get my own phrases right. It's those three images, though. The gospel is so wrapped up in that. Conclusion, Jesus didn't come to rescue or give the victory to those who think that they got this on their own, right? Jesus didn't come uh, for those who think they're okay. He didn't, didn't come for those who don't think they're sick. He came to rescue and to give the victory to those who know they are weak. Came, came for those who've been sickened by not only the sin on the outside of them, but the sin on the inside. He came to rescue those who've been crushed by the enemy, those who've tasted the rottenness of defeat. I read a story this last week. It's a horrific story to prepare you. I'm not going to give a lot of details, but if you didn't hear about it, the story of a father in Ohio who took his three little boys under the age of seven, lined them up in the front yard, and shot them execution style. Do you feel that horror that you feel just thinking about that? 
If you take it a step further, the oldest son realized what was happening and ran into the woods. And the father, when, was, when he was arrested, admitted, I hunted him down and shot him. What makes a father do that? Horrifying. I think reading that story for me was more horrifying than thinking about the betrayal that we've imagined in our text today, but I also think that it brings some of the emotional weight of what we've been thinking about to the forefront. I'm sure there's many of you here today, um, I know that I have for sure, experienced the horror of betrayal, the hands of abusers who masqueraded as friendly caretakers. Due to the way it goes. Many of us can probably share some stories of leaders or pastors or doctors or teachers or family members or friends, parents, spouses, and they left marks of their horrific betrayal on our hearts. Most of us probably do understand the sick feeling we've talked about, the crushed feeling, the defeated feeling. Also certain that each of us probably does have our own unhealthy rhythms, coping with that kind of pain and horror. I'm sure some of them probably aren't very God-honoring. The psalmist, as we study him today, as we study this text today, really challenges us, challenges me. Challenges me to look to the God of the weak. Challenges me to honestly deal with, the, with my enemies, those who have hurt me. Challenges me to rest my heart in the victory um, that I get when I draw close to God because He delights in me. He delights me because of the person and the work of His Son. He was crucified, was risen, and is returning. This place is not my home. There will be one day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more sickness. That's heaven. We have to look forward to it. need to remember that even as horrific as some of these things are, even the story of the man with his boys in the yard, I think there's something more horrific than that. And I think it's hard for some of us to comprehend, but the idea that somebody who was completely innocent never sinned, which, which brings that story of the three boys in the yard forefront because when we think of children, we think of innocent children. Although if you have children, you know that children sometimes aren't always so innocent. But in a, in a scenario like that, that horror, there was one person who was completely innocent. His name's Jesus, right? And in his final hours, he too coped with the pain of betrayal at the hands of a man named Judas, who was a close friend, proved himself to be an absolute monster. Jesus washed his feet as he washed the other disciples' feet. And then Jesus carried his cross up that hill to Golgotha, where he gave his life as a sacrificial ransom for enemies who would become a family of saints. Like If you've been hurt and if you've been wounded or sickened or crushed or defeated by the blows of an enemy who promised to be family and then turned out to be an absolute fraud and a monster, what you can do today is look to the God of the weak. Look to the God of the weak while trusting that because He delights in you, 
on account of the bloody cross, on account of the empty tomb, on account of the promise of heaven, you will experience complete victory. You will experience absolute justice over Satan, sin, and death, our ultimate enemies. And on that day, a much better day than the day the psalmist was talking about here. On that day when Christ returns, it will be our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and all who follow after them, who will experience the worst day of their eternal existence as they get true justice. My prayer in closing is that the truths of this message, that the God of the weak does relieve our sickness, that the enemies of the weak will no longer crush us. And the reason why is because the victory of the weak is found in our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. My, my hope, my prayer, is that these truths would give you strength in your weakness. These truths would give you healing in your sickness. These truths would give you restoration where you've been crushed, hope where you feel defeated. Finally, I pray these truths would enable you to praise the God who delights in you, as I spoke about earlier, just like David, where you find no shame. That you would be even more undignified than this in the same way that the psalmist at the end cries out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would continue to magnify and exalt yourself in our midst as we turn our hearts to worship you in song and remembering your work at the cross in communion. Father, I pray that you would do that and then some as we close our time together. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.